Survival Podcast, as always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tougher, even if they don't. Today is Monday, March the 1st, 2021. It is another month begun. It is the first day of the month that is the last quarter in Q1. When this month is over, we'll be through a quarter of the year. Um, boy, things just seem to be moving really fast. My wife and I talked about how February just kind of just, I mean, it's already a short month, right? But it just kind of disappeared. And I think part of it was we lost almost a week because all we were doing was keeping things going around here. Um, and we didn't get a lot of things accomplished that we uh, intended to get accomplished in that week. That was a week where we didn't have the grandkids. Uh, which ended up being a blessing, I guess. Uh, we had family in town that spent the time with um, the grandkids, and they were really going to spend it mostly with the grandkids. But my, my son and my daughter-in-law's work were both shut down for most of the week, so they ended up um, all together. So it worked out. But our plans were to get a lot of things done because, you know, you don't have kids, you can get more done. And, uh, boy, it just really didn't happen. But tick-tock, tick-tock, the clock ticks for us all. So what are we going to talk about today? Um, I want to talk to you guys about actual climate change, real climate change, that I actually think we should be really concerned about. And I am going to talk about it in two parts today. Most people call me a climate change denier. This is stupidity. It's asinine to call me a climate change denier. I've never denied that climate change happens. Uh, I've also never denied that humans play a role in the climate. Never once have I done that. In fact, the uh, we'll save it, but I'll, I'll tell you why the statistic that 99% or 90% or 95% or whatever number they pull out of their ass agree is, is bullshit when we, when we lead off today. But I think there's actually a lot of things that we do that affect our climate in a negative way. And maybe in some ways it's less they affect climate, but they actually cause a loss in climate moderation that natural ecosystems have been providing for Earth for almost ever. Um, so I am going to talk about what humans do that negatively affects our climate. When people say I deny climate science, what they're saying is I don't believe in the mass hysteria around CO2. I'm not even saying that it has no effect. I'm saying the effect is not as significant as made to be. And we have a much bigger problem environmentally than oh, the air that you exhale. Additionally, I want to talk about natural climate change. And if you go back and put global cooling in the Survival Podcast website search bar, you will find that the first two shows I did on global cooling were in 2008 and 2009. And if you listen to them, you will hear me talk about this period of time right now, 2020 through 2050, being what's known as a grand solar minimum. Now, I didn't say that back then because I'm some kind of uh, Nostradamus type because I can read and I know science. And this grand solar minimum has been pre predicted for a long time. And these, these sun cycles, the 11-year 11, uh, 11 sun cycles, and then the grander you know, maximum uh, cycles, of maximums and minimums, are also extremely predictable. And we are headed into what may be the lowest activity of the sun 
in, in any modern times. It could be as bad as what was called the Maunder Minimum. I'll tell you more about that today. Uh, but even if it's not, it could be at least on par with the Dalton Minimum. And we'll talk a little bit about that as well. So I think we're, we're heading into a place where the climate is going to begin to cool. And I'll tell you more about that today and, and what I think needs to be done about it at... I'll tell you some things that could be done at a policy level. I'm just going to tell you they're probably not going to happen. But I'm going to tell you what we need to be doing is homesteaders and permaculturists to prepare for this because if this is what it looks like, it is a much bigger problem than anybody seems to accept that it's going to be. Before we do that, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors today. Sponsor of the day number one today is John Pugliano with the Wealth Steading Podcast. If you want to hear somebody break down the complex investing and economic issues of the day into bites that are easy for you to understand, digest, and then know what to do about, you know, what to do about them, real concrete actions you can take to preserve your wealth, then check out the Wealth Steading Podcast with John Pugliano. He is an amazing guy. You know, he's been on our expert council for years. So when he asked to become a sponsor, I made a space. I'll just I'll leave it at that. I made a space available for him because, of course, I would endorse John Pugliano. He's an amazing man. Check out the Wealth Steading Podcast. Next up today, KnifeKits.com. This is a sponsor who's been with us since 2010. It's 2021, in case you, you didn't know. 11 years as a sponsor of the Survival Podcast. KnifeKits.com gives you everything you need to do, everything you need to start making and crafting your own knives by hand. You can either go the kit route, that's why they're called knife kits, where you get things that are pretty pretty close to done. You just kind of fit, do the final fit and finish and sharpening and stuff. Or you can take things from raw materials all the way through your own forging or uh, metal removal process and make knives from scratch. It's up to you. They have it all. Check them out at knifekits.com. All right, so let's start talking about this. And I want to start out with a quote of the day. And this was one of those quotes that I said I had last week that I – had already for the show, and then I put the graphic in, and then I didn't do it. Um, so we'll, it, it fits this show pretty well. It's this, and this is uh, by Stephen Covey of, of the famous uh, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People guy. He said, paradigms are powerful because they create the lens through which we see the world. And I, I think one of the problems when we have a, a lens that the majority sees the world through is if it's wrong. So if, if we look at climate change that we're going to be talking about today, and we say the problem is CO2, what if it isn't? What if everything they say is happening is happening, but CO2 is not the cause or not the primary cause? Even if it's a contributing factor, what if it is a minor contributing factor? Well, there's a lot of problems with that paradigm, isn't there? Because number one, we can economically hurt ourselves by trying to fix a problem, by doing the wrong thing. The other part of it, though, is, and I think this is the bigger issue, the problem continues to get worse, and the actual causes are ignored. I think this is a symptom, and when, when I get into this today, you're going to realize real quick that I am not, I'm not talking out of my ass when I say I really believe that humans affect our climate. I know a lot of you probably think I don't believe that, but it's because I think people get selective in their hearing um, and so as soon as you say, I don't buy into CO2, they say, well, that means he doesn't believe in climate change. So it's going to become really clear that I think we have some real problems. And I find these problems, even if they're not directly climate problems, is environmental problems. To be, it, it, even if 
all the stuff that we hear about global warming is true. That the, the problems I'll give you today are bigger problems. And this, this band-aid therapy that we practice in the United States, we want an easy answer. So when, when we say climate change is caused by fossil fuels, I know the solution's not easy, but the answer is, right? The answer is we'll stop burning fossil fuels and everything will go back to the way it was. And, and that is ignoring the complexity of ecosystems, and it's ignoring actual science. And it's ignoring, I'm going to give you what I think are ten problems, and every one of them is bigger than CO2, even if I'm wrong about CO2. And, and that's the approach I want to come out with this today. And what I want to start out with that as well is, there is this statistic that's thrown around. It's either 90, 95, or 99, or 98, depending on who's pulling the statistic out of their ass and what source they're using. This says that 99 or 98 or whatever percentage of scientists agree that humans are the cause of climate change or are a cause of climate change. And this is a real flawed argument. First of all, we do not do science by consensus. We just don't. That's not if if you do something through consensus, it isn't science. Okay? That's, that's, that's exactly the opposite of what science is. Science was designed so that consensus was no longer an argument. Because everybody just believed a thing, but nobody could prove the thing. Science said, let's take this apart, let's test it. That's why we created the scientific method, which we teach children in fifth grade, and then we immediately lump all this climate change stuff on it and basically say, but don't, don't worry about it here. Somebody else did it for you. Because the scientific method has not been applied to this. And the scientific method does not work with consensus. It works with proof. It works with control versus experimental and testing and proof, not computer models. And computer models might be useful, except when they're constantly wrong. But the real issue is how is the question of the cited statistic presented to the so-called scientists? The question is, do you believe that humans are causing climate change or affecting the climate of the planet? How do you think I would answer that question based on what you heard me say today? Absolutely. Of course we are. Of course we are. I have no, and I've never contended otherwise. I've just said that CO2 is not the main problem. And what I'm about to go through, again, I think will make a really great case to anybody that's even remotely open-minded on this subject. If you, Even if you believe the, the so-called consensus argument, that if you listen to what I have to say, it will dramatically impact the way you see this issue. But before you just trust the science, what I'd like you to think about is what you've witnessed in the past year with COVID and so-called science. Look at hydroxychloroquine. Let's pretend that it doesn't work. We know that it does, and we know the mechanism by which it works. But let's pretend that it didn't work. Science told you during that debate that hydroxychloroquine was a very dangerous medication. This is a medication that about 70% of the countries in the world is available over the counter, like you would go to Eckerd Drugs and just buy it. This is a medication that over 60,000 doses a day are handed out by VA for treatment of, of illnesses like lupus and other autoimmune issues. 60,000 doses a day, just from Department of VA. 
Like, there is no case that you can make that this medication is very dangerous, especially at the dosages suggested for its use with COVID. Which were, if you were sick and at risk, along with zinc and a Z-Pack, two tablets on your first day, and then one tablet a day for five days. Full stop. The end. Done. There is no way that anybody can make a medical case or a scientific case that that poses any significant risk to anybody taking it, even if there's nothing wrong with them. Okay? The preventive dose was one tablet every 14 days. Again, safe. You were told by so-called scientists that this was incredibly dangerous for people to take. It should only be taken in a hospital under the supervision of a doctor. A medication that people walk around eating like M&Ms throughout the world, science told you it was dangerous. And I'm not going to get into the other things, but if you, if you look at the... Well, let's do one other thing that science has told you about COVID. The only way that we can combat this is to shut down our economies, lock people in their homes, and use these onerous measures with masking, etc. In the beginning, you can look at that and say, well, we really don't know. People like me might object to it, but you don't have any proof either way yet. In the world, though, we have, we have nations, and within the United States, we have states who have who've handled this dramatically differently. You could not find a more dramatic difference in the way this was handled versus California and Florida. And by the way, the, uh, the governor of Florida said that recently Fauci said that Andrew Cuomo from New York, who has the, like the second highest rate of death in the country from COVID, who handled it miserably, should, could contact governor, uh, uh, the governor of Florida, DeSantis, and tell him how to handle this. Okay, if that doesn't just boggle your mind alone, I, I, I don't know what, what does. That you're still holding up the gold standard of somebody that sent infected patients into nursing homes and made them keep them there is what we should be doing. But if we look at California and Florida, we should be done with the debate. Do lockdowns and masking work? No. No, the data says they don't work. If we, if we had all done it the same way, then you could make the case, well, it would be worse if we didn't. But when you have states that, in South Dakota, for instance, if you look at Sweden, none of these places that didn't put these draconian measures in, once you give it enough time, for the full cycles to run, have done any worse than nations that lock down. They have not done any worse than places where they have the mask orders. They haven't done any worse. Okay, so that right there, that's an example of data driving a conclusion versus an opinion and a consensus. And you can keep going through that. So if you trust science after what you've seen there, then I don't even know what to say. Trust science is not an argument. It's an appeal to authority fallacy. Trust science is not a thing. That's not how science, science doesn't work on trust. So here's some things that we don't have to trust to know our problems. And there's plenty of science that's evidence-backed to show us our bigger problems in, in many ways. And some way contribute to climate change driven by human activity. The first one is desertification. Okay? You can't have a more clear-cut case to we have caused a climate change than to take a place that's not a desert and you've literally turned it into a desert. It is a climate type. Deserts are climates. They're cli it's a, cli a description of the climate of a region. And we can look at countless places that didn't used to be deserts that are now deserts. And it's not just that, well, they don't have a lot of vegetation. Their rainfall is, is, is in significant decline. 
And the, the decline in rainfall alone does not explain the fact that this place is now a desert. It should be able to do better on the rain that it's getting. But we have damaged these ecosystems in, in, in such ways with clearing, with clearing them, with the way that we've, we've handled our agriculture on them, etc. Moving right on from desertification, topsoil runoff. The United States exports one thing by tonnage in excess of anything else that we export. And this export, we don't get any money for. We get, it's a negative ROI on it. And it's topsoil. By ton, we export more topsoil through wind and erosion into our rivers, streams, and oceans than anything else that leaves this country, period. And you, you can't remove topsoil which is what all you know all things grow in in natural systems and not have an effect one you're going you know there a lot of these are connected topsoil erosion is a big part of why we have desertification in, in the first place but if you're really concerned about carbon in the atmosphere then the most alarming thing that's happening today should be the erosion of our topsoil Because plants take carbon out of the atmosphere and they put it into the soil. But you have to have soil for that to happen in significant amounts. And for it to stay bonded in the soil, you have to have that. So topsoil runoff has a huge impact on climates regionally and I believe globally. Um, Biocide runoff goes right along with this. So, you know, I could make this list longer by saying fungicide, herbicide, etc. But I'm just going to throw all the sides, all the biocides into one problem here. And the primary way this stuff runs off is along with the topsoil through agriculture. We also have a tremendous amount of this running off from lawn care, a massive amount from lawn care. And, lawn, and, and this stuff runs into our oceans, and it contributes to things like algae blooms that kill massive amounts of marine creatures. So th th this is an ongoing and continued threat to our environment. All these biocides. Next we have aquifer depletion. We're pumping water out of what we call fossil aquifers. This is water that's very, very deep. The size of, of, of oceans almost. In, 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 in the case of the... Ol 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 I can't ever say it right. The big one that runs up and down the center of the United States. Ol Ol I, I'm not going to be able to say it today. My, my mind is locked up. I can even see the word in my head and I can't say it. Uh, it's... I, I give up. You guys know what I'm talking about. Uh, it runs all the way into West Texas, all the way up to the Canadian border. And we think of an aquifer like a, like a lens, like a round thing a lot of times in our head. That's, you know, a lot of times if we draw uh, underground water, we draw it as a lens. Well, it's not. It looks a lot like a natural lake in its shape. So you have these, what you would think of at a lake, you would call them coves. It's like these long fingers that, 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 that create this rough edge. Well, some of those are dry now. There's towns and areas in places like West Texas where they've traditionally farmed cotton and other things that they can't farm there anymore because they've pumped the aquifers dry. Now, when we're pumping that water and we're over-irrigating these desert environments, we're also salting the freaking earth, by the way. But you can't deplete aquifers without having a massive impact on the balance of systems, there's a reason that water's there in the first place. Next is overall, just overall groundwater depletion. 
You know, they keep blaming climate change and as in somebody burned too much natural gas for why we're seeing like these reservoirs shrink. Well, I'm sorry, it's not a freaking CO2 problem that causes a river to stop flowing, to literally become a dry bed. Uh, I have a video out on my Odyssey channel by Jeff Lawton where he goes to the swales in Arizona that were built during um, the Great Depression by the CCC. And at that same, in that same video, he shows this river that used to run through Arizona near Tucson. And you can now walk where this river is supposed to be, and it's, it's dusty and dry. A river is gone. Okay, if you have rivers doing that, there's a reason your impoundments in reservoirs are lower than you would expect them to be. Because less water is flowing into those systems. And we have done things that have literally dried up these rivers. Primarily, it's deforestation, which is one of my other problems I have here. But you can't have an entire river disappear without having an impact on freaking climate. And we humans did this. Next, we have mercury and every other heavy metals and plastics in our water, fresh and oceanic both. This is a lot from fossil fuels. The primary contributor of mercury in our water, guys, it's coal. Sulfur in our water is from coal. That's another one of my problems, having all of these other byproducts coming into our water. But plastics, we have entire reefs of plastic garbage in our ocean. You can't do this and not have an impact on climate and also other environmental problems. And again, the sulfur is an incredible problem because it leaches into our groundwater and then it oxidizes. Do you know what to oxidize means? To bond with oxygen. When you look at a, a piece of rusty iron, any you know, ferrous metal, right, that rusts, that is the metal and oxygen have bonded together. That's why it creates heat. Those little hand warmers that you buy in a, in a, in a sporting goods store to keep your hands warm, they're the same thing as an O2 absorber. And they have an accelerant that simply causes the iron filings in there to rust faster, and it produces heat. That's what oxidation means. Well, sulfur oxidizes. So when you get too much sulfur in groundwater, it literally takes the oxygen out of the water. It turns the water like an orange. It's a very disgusting color. I've seen it in a lot of creeks in Pennsylvania near mining operations. And then it forms a slime that is so slippery, it's, it's worse than walking on ice, trying to walk across a rock with this stuff on it. I mean, you'll break your neck but it'll kill everything in the water. You can't kill all the life in a stream or a river and not have an impact on climate. See what I mean when I say I believe in human-caused climate change? Next will be deforestation. And again, a lot of these problems are interlaced. A big reason that we're having depletion of our groundwater is, our, is, is losing our forests. The forests are the great moderator of all things. They moderate the impacts of climate change when it happens, because it happens. It, it, we're going to get to like how it happens without people touching anything. But when we screw up the moderator, right, the moderation effect of our forests is massive. Additionally, when we, when we cut down forests to put in sugarcane fields, in Brazil, for instance, not only do we lose all of that great water infiltration that goes into the forest that then comes out as streams and eventually become rivers and natural lakes, we also lose the forest or, or tree effect rain. Forests are rainmakers. So you can't 
alter precipitation patterns without affecting the climate. Now we also have, because we've built our cities to such megascapes, a huge urban heat island effect. One of the reasons you, you, you'll see these, these claims of higher temperatures is because when you take 6 million or 8 million people and put them into an urban center and everything's built out of steel and concrete instead of the earth being covered with natural substances, you get more thermal gain. This isn't hard to understand. Go to a west wall late in the day and put your hand against it. And then go to a south wall and put your hand against it. It's not hard to understand at all, is it? Go to a west wall and put your hand against it of concrete, and then go to a west side of a tree and put your hand against it. Take a little thermal gun and look at the temperature difference between concrete being hit by that sun and a natural substance like wood being hit with that sun. Now, of all the ones I'm giving you today, urban heat island effects are probably the least of my concern. But it's still a concern. And then the overall loss of biological, biological diversity in a multitude of ways. When we're monocropping billions of acres, the, the, the loss of biodiversity is massive. When we're drying up groundwater, the lack of biodiversity becomes dramatic in these environments. We're losing animals and we're losing species because of the way that we do things. And I'm going to say those are ten things, but when you... Consider those 10 items. The single biggest contributor we have to environmental disaster and human impact of climate change is not CO2. It's agriculture. Not a single one of those, except for the urban heat island effect. So 9 of the 10 um, have at least something to do with agriculture. And I know what you're thinking. Well, what about the mercury and the sulfur that you say comes from coal? Okay. What is the what industry uses the most electricity and fossil fuel in this country? And the answer is agriculture. It's agriculture. And you gotta look at the total footprint. It's not just the tractor or the combine. It's all the trucks that move all the agricultural produce and planes all over the world because we don't eat local anymore. That would be another example. It's all the processing of the food. These foods that we're, we've been convinced are human foods that are not human foods because you cannot eat them in their natural state. Use a tremendous amount of heat. You look at how much we do with corn and soy, and most of that is heat extracted. It's a tremendous energy sink, and it doesn't have to be. We have ways we can, we can grow things, and we can do a better job, but agriculture is our, our biggest problem that we have. Now, let's talk a little bit about this this solar minimum that we're ending, this grand minimum, which runs, see, a grand minimum runs through multiple cycles, just like a grand maximum does. And we have a period of time right now that's between, right about now, in around, it's projected to be about 2053, where we're in this grand minimum. This is, again, this is not debatable. And you, if you look into this, you will find all types of so-called scientists defending their narrative and saying, well, yeah, we're going to have a solar minimum, but no, it's not going to get any colder. It's still, it's still global warming that we now call global weirding, because it doesn't match our things. And everything's more extreme on both ends of the spectrum, but overall, the, still, you know, the underlying current of the narrative is the planet's getting warmer. They don't want to talk about the planet getting cooler, because number one, it gets in the way of their narrative. The other side of it, though, is a much bigger problem.
If you look at the history, the absolute history of humanity, and you look at the record of temperature, if you want to see times where there's wars, insurrections and revolutions, massive disease pandemics, crop failures, and death and pestilence from you know sea to shining sea, it's global cooling periods. It's a much bigger problem. And I'm not saying that if you have a massive warming that it can't cause problems. Please don't misunderstand me. What I'm saying is, in general, when we have the climate either warm a couple degrees, a couple three degrees, or decline a couple three degrees, there's a lot more dead people as a result of the cooling than the warming. Humanity has historically prospered during periods of warming. Again, this is not debatable. And we're moving into this this period and right now we've entered solar cycle 25 now it's probably cycle 500 kabillion right but it's we've only been keeping records of these solar cycles it was not that long ago that humanity figured out hey there's these sunspots and it shows solar activity and there's a correlation between solar activity and other things that happen here on earth so 25 11 year cycles we've now recorded and we've gotten pretty good at understanding what the next one looks like And there are two recent cycles that have had a dramatic effect, and I mean a dramatic effect on humanity, with global cooling. And they are the Maunder Minimum, which was during what we called the Little Ice Age. And that's the one that gets the kind of the most press right now. It's the one people talk about the most because it was so dramatic. I mean, we're talking about a period of time when... The, the, the Thames River in London would freeze completely over and they would have like festivals out on the ice. That was going on during the Maunder Minimum. One of the big drivers that drove so many people out of Europe to the New World, North America, was the climate itself and, and the, the effect that it had on available resources. It's not the only thing, but it's a thing that we don't ever talk about. If you dig into real history, you'll find out that it's true. But there was also something else. There was another period of time where it got very, very cold, where there was snowfall in New York in the summertime, and it was called the Dalton Minimum. That was a little more recent. It was 1795 through 1823. And we can look at both those periods, and we can say, well, what would it mean if this happened now? And the answer is bad shit. I'm not going to get real technical in this episode. I know some of you are thinking, man, he needs to have Christian from Ice Age Farm Run. The invitation has been extended, it's been accepted, and the form has not been filled out. So if you're in, in touch with Ice Age Farmer, please tell him, go to Jack's site and fill out the form so he can get you on the damn air, because I want to have him on to get more technical about this. Um, in fact, let me give you three great uh, video channels that you can check out to learn more about this. One is Ice Age Farmer. That's Christian. Uh, then there's Adapt 2030. I have links to these in the show notes today. I have for Ice Age Farm and Adapt 2030, I have links to their Odyssey pages because they're on Odyssey. The other one, which is really technical and really focuses on space weather and the effects of the, our planet from space events, as specifically the sun being the number one, is called Suspicious Observers. All three of those are worth checking out. The Adapt 2030 guy sometimes is a little out there on some things, but uh, it's still solid information. Um, if we have this happen, 
and it looks like it's going to. Every, there is no science that it's not going to happen, okay? Let me put it that way. There's no science saying that these things are not coming. The question is, when we enter this minimum, how dramatic of a cooling we will have? Very little, not much, a whole lot. We don't know. We don't know. The historical precedent is significant cooling. The, the scientific argument is, well, there's so much warming that there won't be so much cooling. Okay. Well, you know, I, I really want you to think about this. Science has largely ignored the effect of the sun on our warming and cooling of our planet. Just think about that. Think about how asinine that is. Because it gets in the way of the narrative, we'll just pretend it doesn't exist. It's a very dangerous thing to do, in my opinion. So, what happens when you have a grand minimum, grand solar minimum, and the, and the, the, the sun is less active? Well, one thing is we end up with kind of an erratic jet stream. And it can plunge and become very wavy and go really, really deep down, much further south than it typically does. You want to know why you just got the, the, the cold event that we just got? that shut off like power to over like 4 million Texans and, and ca caused grid problems, and it lasted so long and got so cold, that's exactly what happened. If you want to see where the, where the dramatic cold stopped, go pull up a map and look where the jet stream was on the coldest days in Texas and look at what the temperature is on the north side and the south side of that jet stream. The jet stream is generally, it moves north and south, but it is... Fairly stable in its behavior. It becomes far less so during a solar minimum. The other thing is, and, and there's arguments as to exactly why, but there is no doubt there is a data correlation between volcanic events and solar minimums. And what, what we have to start understanding is, and we're not very good at this, is how little we know. There's some theories as to why, but there is no definitive answer as to why this correlation exists, but we can look through history and we can actually back predict when solar cycles occurred, because since we can look forward now, we can also look backward, even when they weren't keeping records, and we see a very strong correlation between increased volcanic activity and solar minimums. And when that happens, it's the bad becomes worse, because of all of the ejected uh, ash and material, cold becomes colder. Another thing that happens is we get hit with a lot more cosmic rays, and it has a lot of effects I won't get into today. But the primary, and so cosmic rays, we think of all this radiation that we get hit with as being uh, radiation from our own sun. And the sun does obviously hit us with radiation. But there are cosmic rays, meaning that they come from other places in the solar system, the universe, etc., right? I'm sorry, the galaxy and, and the universe, right? These cosmic rays that come through our, our solar system. The main thing that protects us from them is not our atmosphere. It's the sun's electromagnetic activity and how it interacts with our atmosphere. So if you have less of the solar activity, you have less shielding from these cosmic rays. And we have effects from that as well. Now, I want you to consider what happens if, as has happened in the past, multiple times recorded through human history, Our global overall temperature significantly declines. The length and duration of our winters becomes longer, and our growing seasons shorten. And we have, unlike in the past, the added effects 
of reduced surface water to make the most of the time we can still grow food. We have less water for irrigation when we have deforestation, and we've lost the moderating effects of the forest to a degree, a highly polluted ocean, a lack of biological diversity, which allows us to use other resources during these periods. When something is short in supply, we can use some other animal, some other plant, right? But we've lost that diversity. And the burden on production systems for one, for, I'm sorry, for eight billion people. I believe this is true. I, I could be wrong, but I believe this is true. I think the number of people that exist in the world today is greater than the number of all the people that ever existed from the dawn of humanity till 1900. That, that, that fact seems to be in my head somewhere, but I could be wrong. Don't slaughter me if I am. But there is some, it, there is a, a year. I think it was 1900. Maybe it's 1800. But think about that. So even, even if it was, if the, it was the year 1500, which it isn't. If you have more people alive today than you have from the beginning of humanity up to your 1500, how the burden that is on the planet in the best of times. Now you have a period of global cooling. You're trying to feed 8 billion people and you have marked reduction in production capacity. So this is an uncharacteristic show. It's kind of dark. It's kind of gloomy and doomy. It, it, we haven't really talked about anything that we can do about this yet. And that's not usually what TSP is. And it won't be left that way. We're, we're going to get into that. But I, I do want to tell you that part of this it, we can't do much about. There's a lot of things we can do, but there's a lot of this that if this is going to happen, this is going to happen. We, and, and that's I, I think that is another reason that government and science doesn't want to discuss it. They don't like to point to problems and then say, okay, and we're, we're effed. And, I, and it requires unconventional thinking to address this problem. The, the, the thing is, a lot of the things that we could be doing at a policy level, meaning there's mechanical things we can do, but you would have policy that encourages this. They are good things to do, even if I'm wrong. If you actually think the problem is CO2, then almost everything that I'm going to talk about would be good for the reduction of the use of fossil fuels. But we need to start building our production systems, whether it's a farm or a backyard homestead, so that it can stand a sh an entire shift of climate zone. So if you're in zone 6, you need to be running a production system that will survive being in zone 5 or zone 7. If you're in zone 8, you need to be running a production system that would survive in zone 10 or zone 7. Minimum. Minimum one direction. Now, see, I've, I've actually listened to permaculturists who I really respect, like Dave Jackie. They're so wrapped up in global warming, they give half the advice. They give half the advice. You need to, you, if you're in zone five, you need to be able to, to plant things that will survive zone six, zone seven. But they don't go the other way because they just can't conceive of a planet that's actually colder. And it's short sighted. It's very, very dangerous because. Most systems that would survive in Zone 7 will survive in Zone 8. Think about it. Think about it. If you end up with a longer growing season and a warmer growing season, as long as you've seen to the issue with mitigating drought from longer, warmer periods in some parts of the climate, because in other places we have plenty of rain, as long as you've done that, it really isn't that challenging. 
If you're planting any of the main staple crops that we grow, they're going to stop growing because it went from zone 5 to zone 6. If you're growing wheat or soy, come on. But when you go the other way, you shorten the growing season. So if you didn't get the crop in early enough and your cold weather comes sooner, you lose it. Or if you can't get it in the ground until later in the year, you've got problems. And if it's shortening on both ends, then you really have a problem. You see how that works? You see why this is a bigger problem? Next, um, so we need to be able to stand at least one zone shifts. And people say, well, if you really believe global, global cooling is going to be the problem what's coming, why then worry about, why don't you do a reverse Dave Jackie? Why don't you say, well, just make sure you can handle colder? Because I don't know. I think. I don't know. And I'm willing, unlike many people in this, to say that I don't know. And I know things can change. And I know that we should be building that sort of non-brittleness into anything we do anyway. Because maybe everybody's wrong. Um, next, we can continue to build permaculture-based and regenerative agriculture-based systems. We can do that. If you gain control of 40 or 400 or 4,000 acres, you get to decide what type of system you put in. And I think regenerative-style systems that are based on animals, specifically with ruminants and grazing and poultry systems that run on civil pasture models are going to become the most profitable systems that you could have in agriculture over the next 20 years. The most profitable. Nothing will be able to touch them. Because they are largely immune to the, the typical problems of agriculture. Because they're not even agriculture. We call it regenerative ag, but it's really not agriculture. Agriculture is the culture of fields. And it requires killing plants in huge amounts to grow annual production. That's what, that's what it really comes down to. And these savanna mimic systems, if it rains less, the grass still grows. You end up with adaptability. The, the different grasses and forbs that do better with less water than just simply kind of success. And vice versa, if it becomes warmer, etc., they are naturally adaptive systems. They really are. And they rely on animals for maintenance, so there's very little use of fossil fuels in them. And they rely on perennial production, so when the animal eats the forbs of the grasses and the herbs and leaves, more grows back. And it becomes healthier over time. And you couldn't have a system better adapted to a cooling climate than an animal-based system. If you look at the world, this is another thing, this is not debatable. If you look at the world as a whole, and you look at what people eat when they eat locally, okay, the further north you go, the more meat they consume. The further south you go toward the equator, or if you're in the, the southern hemisphere, the further north you go, as you move toward our equator, diets naturally tend to go more and more into plant-based diets. And the further you go toward Arctic climates, the more meat-centric they are. And this is because animals are able to eat things humans can't eat. A cow takes grass you can't eat and turns it into what is likely the most nutrient-dense food on the planet. It's hard to find a food that's more nutrient-dense than beef liver. It really is. And you can't eat grass, and they can. So that's another thing we can do. Earthwork should be done at a national scale. In fact, they should be done at a global scale. 
but it likely won't happen. I really recommend you check a look at this video of Jeff in Arizona. I'll make sure that's in the show notes today as well. And it will go out, because I have a different one today going out in the mail. It will go out in the Daily Mail tomorrow. So if you're on the Daily Mail or Telegram or whatever, don't worry about it. It'll come to you. And when you look at this desert, and he walks through these swales out into the other side of them, and you see an incredibly green, lush landscape, and you see him dig through the grass, and this is a sandy desert, and he starts he's digging down as far as he can. He's got his, almost down to his elbow. And he's still pulling up soil instead of sand. And you can see in it, he's, he almost comes to tears. Because he's done so much work in these, these very brittle, dry, arid landscapes in the Middle East and Africa. So much relief work. And when you see that, you realize that this can be done. And those people don't have to suffer. He makes a comment about that in it. We could be doing this on a scale that's hard to even comprehend and reforesting land that we're literally not doing anything at all with. We don't even have to give up. We should. Let me, get, let me make sure you're not misunderstanding me. But we don't even have to give up corn and soy and wheat to do this and to have a marked effect on regional climate and recharge aquifers and start rivers and streams flowing again. We can go out into this land that was... It was we, a lot of this land that's desert today that you go to and there's nothing there. People don't understand that back in the 20s, 1910s, or late 1800s, all the way up until the Dust Bowl, a lot of this land was farmed. And we did this to the land. We changed the climate. We made a desert where there wasn't a desert. Or we took scrub desert and turned it into non-desert, right, to, to full desert. And we took marginal desert areas, green belts, and we turned them into scrub desert. We, we knocked everything back a level. And we can go to these places, these open, these open rangelands, etc. And by scratching ditches in the ground, we can reforest them. And it, this, is, this is, again, this is not debatable. Because where it was done, you can go look at the results 80 years later. 80 years, no one touched it for 80 years. And it's incredibly productive systems. There's the, the grass in there, I have no doubt we could be grazing animals on it right now. In the freaking desert. right? And it, this is area that, yes, it was more of a scrub or forest desert, but it is a desert macroclimate. And yet it was that productive. Some of the places today that are some of the least productive lands in the world used to be some of the most productive. Look at Egypt. Egypt was the breadbasket of the world at one time. Now it's sand. We can fix this, but we probably won't. Because there's, there's no real interest in doing it by the people that are in power. It doesn't benefit them. Humanity embraced agriculture, not because it was the best decision, because it was the best decision for people in power. When you can commodify food, you can store food, you can ship food, you can tax food. You can essentially make food a currency. You can make food a weapon. And you can control humanity with it. And that's what's been done since the dawn of civilization. Agriculture and civilization came together, not because we, we got what we needed for civilization, but it made control by an elite class of citizens of the majority possible. The next thing we can do 
And I, I'm not, I could give a much longer list of solutions at a policy level, but I won't because it's not really great to talk about things that are probably not going to happen. And I would settle for mass-scale earthworks across the whole country in a lot of land we're not using and a lot of land that we are, and specifically using those earthworks not only to reforest places and to stabilize and recharge groundwater, but I would also like to see massive amounts of earthworks done in the eastern United States to prevent runoff into our river systems like the Mississippi, the St. John's, and the other rivers in Florida, uh, all the, the, the river systems up in the northeast, etc. Like, all of that would be awesome. And it's not expensive. I mean, at that scale, you are talking billions of dollars. But when you look at national-scale building projects that are permanent, it's, it's cheaper than anything else we can do. And we piss away trillions of dollars every year. So taking some billions and fixing something permanently would be totally worth doing. And the other would be stop tilling the soil for annual agriculture. And I would settle right now to make it better, not right, but better, even if they want to go conventional no-till and cover crop. And like I was talking about the Northeast and all the problems with you know, the bays and rivers up there. One of the places that seem seen incredible improvements over the last 25, 30 years is things like the Chesapeake Bay. And because it's because Maryland farmers mostly do no-till. And the state pays them to plant cover crops. Now, would I like to get rid of subsidies and stuff like that? Sure. But if you're spending the money anyway, instead of paying a farmer not to farm and leave his field fallow in dirt, paying a farmer to put cover crops in and stop the runoff, the topsoil loss, the aquifer depletion, etc., reduce the need for fertilizers, it totally, totally prefer that to the alternative of what we're doing most of the country now. Now, if we were to go full tilt here, get the country more on a meat-based diet of pastured and grass-fed animals that are maintaining these perennial systems, that would be you know, as good as it could, it could become. But conventional, I'm talking even the sprays and the earth, all of that shit, we would still be better off if we would just stop tilling. It is the single most detrimental thing to the environment we do in this country. It is worse than coal mining because the coal mining at least now is so highly regulated that a lot of the things that used to happen with coal mining, and you can't tell me otherwise, I grew up looking at the damage from coal mining. I grew up seeing what breakers leave behind in coal slush. I grew up looking in a river that was orange, And having a grandfather tell me that back in the 30s, that the brook trout came up that river in the fall, it looked like a salmon run, and thinking he was crazy. Until I saw pictures of what it used to be like. You can't even, when you looked at some, that, this river, you couldn't even ever conceive of it being anything else. But it was. I'll tell you another secret. One of the several different branches of the school up there, where I grew up, and one of them, I left the state in 1990 and joined the Army. And it was there wasn't a living animal in that lake, or that river, that creek. There were no fish in it. 
in 2002, 2003, 2004, I lived in Pennsylvania when I worked for Fluke Networks. And we lived in a different part of the state, but I would routinely go to where I, I was from. And in that same river, I caught brook trout. You're talking 15 years. And capping the mine runoff was all that it took. And so a lot of this damage, and coal is still the dirtiest energy in the world. Do not take this the wrong way here. I don't want to be vilified. You can vilify me for things I'm saying. Please do not put words in my mouth and vilify me for things I'm not saying. The damage done by coal mining is a fraction of what it was 50 years ago. The same mining, the same amount of mining, because of the regulations that stopped it. The problem is there's almost nothing preventing topsoil loss. There are some you know, NRCS conservation programs and things like that. There is some requirements put on farmers to do certain things in certain ways to reduce runoff. But in the end, we still have this massive runoff, and it's not considered a pollutant. That, let's take away the fact that it's full of biocides, fungicide, herbicide, right, pesticide. Let's forget that for a minute. Topsoil into our water systems is a pollutant, and we don't treat dirt in our water is a pollutant. Any surplus not properly used is the definition of pollution. That's Bill Mollison, very smart man. When we have that much running, because it, t it takes other forms, if there was no biocides, it's still taking massive amounts of nitrogen and carbon into the water that does not belong there. It's going to create algal blooms. It's going to create imbalances. It's going to change the pH of natural ecosystems. It's going to damage and kill zooplankton and phytoplankton. That's going to have a disruption of the entire food chain of animals that live there. There's nothing in the, in, in the country anyway that's doing more damage to our ecosystems than our runoff from our ag systems. Because I said take the biocides out, but you can't. They're there. So now you've got herbicide, pesticides, right? Topsoil. All of this stuff, fungicides, running into our groundwater. While the groundwater itself is being depleted. And what happens? What happens? Come on. Remember your, you know, your eighth grade science. What happens when you have things in water and they're not things that evaporate with water and you reduce the amount of water through evaporation? What happens to the concentration level of those things in the water? Well, they go up. Right? So if you take, if you take a gallon of salt water from the ocean and you let 50% of it evaporate, so you have a half gallon, the water's now twice as salty. This isn't hard to understand, right? When I say that, you're like, well, duh. Okay, so what do you think happens when you have water that's full of a, of a pesticide, but the volume of water is reduced by half? The concentration goes up by twice. Real simple to understand. There's nothing we're doing worse than this. In the end, though, you should assume the worst and plan for it. And if it doesn't happen, you're still better off. We need to really start thinking differently. as Like, even if you don't call yourself a permaculturist, even if you're like, eh, permaculture is hippie shit. Okay, fine. As a homesteader, as a small farmer, as a producer of your own food, as a animal husbandry person, we have to start thinking differently. We have to start thinking along the lines of what happens if we can't get feed for our animals? What happens if I can't just flip a switch and irrigate? What happens if 
I start getting frosts in May when I usually don't have any more frosts after April. What happens if my first frost starts happening in October versus November? We have to start thinking this way. We have to. And the reason we have to is even if it's not this grand solar minimum, sooner or later we will have a massive period of cooling on the planet because we have before. Do you understand how simple that is? We will have periods of warming and we will have periods of cooling. It is going to happen. Humanity is going to have to deal with it. You don't get, there is no button. You could push a button, if there was a button and you could push it, and we would never mine a, an ounce of fossil fuel ever again for the rest of humanity, if somehow we had a space portal where aliens sent us solar panels and wind machines, and it took no energy to make them, and they just magically set themselves up and started making energy for us, and we could be 100% carbon neutral for energy tomorrow morning, it will not prevent the planet from warming and cooling. Even if fossil fuel is a contributing factor to warming or cooling, it won't stop that cycle because that cycle is a natural cycle of the planet. And the thing that's kept us alive as a species is our adaptability, but it's also been the moderation effect of things like giant jungles and forests and aquatic systems, the ocean moderating effect, etc. That's what's done it. And we've deeply, deeply damaged this. And what amazes me is there are people that if they listen to this entire podcast will still shriek and holler, he's a denier of science. It's like a brainwashing thing has been done to our society. And it has become a belief rather than a a thinking process. Once you believe a thing, you stop thinking about it. All right? When I say thinking about it, I, I, what I mean is you stop examining it from a standpoint, is this, is this real or not? Or what does this mean? Once you, you, once you go from the skepticism that is supposed to be the scientific process to the belief, the belief in a thing, you've gone from skepticism, which we should be skeptical of things even we're pretty sure of, Right? And you've gone into the world of religion. You've gone into the world of spirituality. You've, be, you, you've turned a, a thing we analyze into an article of faith. And once you do that, it's very difficult to take a person and say, but what if you're wrong? What if you're wrong? I don't believe the things that I've told you today. I think they are the most likely scenarios because of the evidence that I've examined and been presented with. And if the evidence changes, my opinion will change because it is not an article of faith. If you take someone that, have, that has a belief in a thing, you can present them with an overload of information. Proving that thing conclusively is not the case, and it won't change their mind. Think about religion as just as an example. Take a person who's in a religion that you don't agree with, that you think is wrong, because there's like thousands of religions, and they all purport to be the religion, right? This is what you should believe. Like, if you are a Buddhist, clearly you believe that the B Buddhist theology is more accurate than Christian philosophy, even if you respect Christian philosophy, or you'd be a Christian instead of a Buddhist. That makes sense, right? 
So you take somebody that's a Buddhist and try to convince them with scientific evidence or the lack of supporting evidence for reincarnation. If they're truly a Buddhist, it's core to their belief system. It doesn't matter what you tell them. That's, the, that's how faith works. I now believe this thing. And I profess my belief in this thing. And I will, I'm unalterable. And it takes a tremendous amount of evidence during the right mindset to transform a belief because it's not based on logic and rational thought. It isn't. That's what makes it a belief. So when you start saying, well, trust the science, that's, again, that's not how science works. And it's, it, it's, it's a profession of, of a belief or a faith in some vaulted authority that has proven itself to not be trustworthy. And because of this track record, you do have to assume that they're not going to do any of the things on a large scale that could be done to fix it. And so we have to do them ourselves, because I do think there is a point where when enough people have use case scenarios, and you can look at it, You know, and you can have a person that says, if we compare it to back where we started about COVID, you can have a person that says, well, I had COVID. I was very, very sick. My doctor gave me hydroxychloroquine, zinc, and a Z-pack, and I got better. The person who's objecting to your case can clearly make a, a, a legitimate statement, well, most people get better anyway. So just because you got better doesn't mean that it was because you took hydroxychloroquine. And that's valid. And it requires a level of testing that's never been done, and all these supposed trials with it, they were purposely flawed. But that means I can't. I, I can tell you I, I think it works. I understand the mechanism by which it should work. I can tell you that when you have medical professionals advising you to take the same supplemental regimen that I advised you to take in March, which is mostly Qcertin, zinc, D3, etc., but the Qcertin and zinc... The reason for that is the same reason that hydroxychloroquine and zinc work. So you have a doctor saying hydroxychloroquine doesn't work. Yeah, but this certain stuff, it might be useful. Those, those two things don't go together, right? At that point, you, you, but you still can make an argument against hydroxychloroquine. I could make a decent argument against it myself, even though I don't agree with it. Okay, when you have somebody that goes into a place, does earthworks, puts in ruminants, manages them holistically, and then says, look. And you look at that piece of ground, and you look at all of the farmland around it. There's no argument that can be made that that didn't work. You can't, you can't argue it away. You can't hide it. You can't prevent people from looking at it and going, holy shit. Right? It's not subjective. Here's this piece of land. You can look with Google Earth at some of these farms that have been done. And it's brown everywhere, and there's this patch that looks like a freaking rainforest. You can't hide that. And that's why I think it's the most important thing that we can do, especially people that are managing significant properties. You know, 20, 40, 50, 100 acres or more. Stuff like that. It is the most significant contribution you can make to the truth. Because you can't You can't argue with it. And the people that can do the most with this are the ones that are on marginal lands. Like, if you do this in the middle of the Shenandoah Valley of Pennsylvania, it's not that dramatic. It works! And you can, show, you can show the results 
with the economics. Because the farmer will make more money because they have less costs and more production. Beef's expensive, if you don't know. So when you have a system that's producing high-quality, premium animal products and having very low inputs, you're going to make more money. But that's a... That's not, that, that does not hit people in the emotional quadrant, especially if they believe that you shouldn't enslave animals or some other shit like that. But when you take land that's marginal, where it's been the extraction type of agriculture has been done for decades, and you already were in a brittle landscape and you were just teetering on careening over, and you do it there, then you get that dramatic look. And I'm not saying everybody should run out and do it. I'm saying if you have the opportunity, you should take it. Because what we've already seen people like Neil Spackman do in the Saudi Arabian freaking desert, if we did a project at that scale in a place that's, you know, that gets 15 or 20 inches of rainfall a year in the United States, it would be so earth shattering. It would be so dramatic. You have people like Mark Shepard, 110 acres, I think is what New Forest Farm is. He has three species of frogs on his farm that aren't even supposed to be alive in the state anymore. They're supposedly extinct in the state of Wisconsin. But they're there now. He didn't go get them and bring them there. They showed up in these little little drive through ponds and stuff like that. They, just, they came back. That means they were there somewhere. And once they found that niche, they said, this is my place. You can't argue with that. You can't make that go away. You can't wave your hand. You can't chant it away. It's too dramatic. And that's what we need to be doing. Whether it's a backyard, you know, a quarter acre backyard that you're doing intensive management with, or a broad scale, broad acre ecosystem that you're managing holistically, you can't argue with it. You can't argue with my property. I just put out a video over the weekend, right? Just put out a video. I showed the, just the grass in my yard and my neighbor's grass across the street. You can't argue with it. You can take a look at a picture from the back of my property out toward the road in 2014, and you can look at a picture from now, and you can't argue with it. You can see things growing on my property. They don't grow on any surrounding property. They don't grow there. They're here. I didn't plant them. They showed up. I have frogs living in freaking... Steel ponds, steel, you know, steel ponds made out of uh, stock tanks. Frogs that are aquatic frogs, right? frogs that, that require surface water to reproduce, to exist, and to live, like bullfrogs and leopard frogs. Where did they come from? The closest surface water is five miles away. I don't know, but they're welcome here. You can't argue with this. You can't counter this argument of creating this biodiversity having this effect because it's too powerful. So it's it's the big and it's the thing that you can do. Can you go get a bunch of scrapers with GPS and start carving up massive amounts of public land out in the desert and recreate what Bill Mollison or, or sorry Jeff Lawton showed us that was done by the CCC, the, the Civilian Conservation Corps under Roosevelt? Can you do that? Probably not without going to prison. Even though they should give you a Nobel Prize for it. But you can manage your backyard. No matter how small or how big it is, you can do that. And we should do what we can with what we have. With that, I hope you guys enjoyed today's show, and I hope it's cleared up for some people that think, like, he didn't believe in man-made climate change at all. Of course I do. 
And anybody that examines it, and I know there's people in this audience that are completely the opposite. You've been so turned off by the lies and the deceit of the scientific community that when anybody says anything like that, you tune that out, the other extreme. No, people didn't do anything. We dried up a fucking river, okay? We dried up not one, multiples, but in the, in the case of Arizona, that river that runs through Tucson, we dried up a fucking river, a fucking river that ran for thousands and hundreds of thousands of years. We executed our ill-guided agriculture, and we made a river go dry. If you look at that, and that had nothing to do, even if the people are right with CO2, nothing. But if you take and you look at, we have streams throughout the, the, uh, the, the, the northwestern United States that are dry, that have been dry since they started cutting trees down for mining timbers. When you dry up rivers and streams and lakes and then say we're not affecting the climate, you're fucking retarded to be blunt. And I understand why people feel that way. Because there's so much deceit. There's so much flawed logic in this, this, this desire to tax the air you exhale. Because that's what, that's what a carbon tax is. You're going to tax CO2, you're taxing the air people excel, ex, ex, exhale. And I understand. But it's like my neighbors I had in Arkansas. Man, remember when she, the, the, my neighbor Lisa, she said, I don't believe in environmentalism. What the hell are you talking about? And when we discussed it, she was a hell of an environmentalist. She just didn't like the term anymore because it was so polluted. We've polluted the term environmentalist. It's asinine. It's like, so you'd be okay if people just started driving garbage trucks up here and dumping it in, in the hole. Of, you know, we had like a big hollow, a holler, right? Like they just like started pulling up right past your house. Right at the end, they just started filling the entire holler with garbage. You'd be okay with that. She's like, of course not. Well, then you're an environmentalist. What I mean is I don't believe in global warming. Oh, okay. It's not the same thing, is it? And that's what's happened to so many people. You can't, and, and, and this is the entire point of this issue. To give license to government and industry to do whatever they want by pandering to a thing that's divisive that you really can't get your arms around. To give you an on-off switch. You turn this off, everything gets better. You turn it on, everything gets worse. And to do so with something that you will never get consensus of people with Well, I'm going to tell you right now, if you made this case to the people of the world, we need to enact policies and techniques and technologies that stop desertification, topsoil runoff, biocide runoff, aquifer depletion, groundwater depletion, putting mercury and every he heavy metals and plastics into our oceans and our rivers and streams, stop sulfur from mining. Uh, from getting into our groundwater and oxidizing, killing all the fish. Stop deforestation. Do something to mitigate heat island effects. What could be as simple as planting things that shade concrete and address the loss of biological diversity in a multitude of ways. You're going to get 80 to 90% heads nodding. So you have to ask yourself, Since a lot of the things that we would do to make that happen would help with global warming, global weirding, climate change, whatever, climate chaos, whatever people are calling it, even if the CO2 people are right, why are they not making that case? Because no one wants to do it. And when I say no one, I mean no one in power wants to do it. It will cost them money.
it won't cost us a lot of money. Again, we're talking you know tens of billions in the United States to do this, which is compared to their the 1.9 trillion dollar you know COVID relief bill, which is only nine percent for COVID, is nothing. It's a rounding error in the budget at this point, and it's a permanent fix. Earthworks are a permanent fi- for for the sake of human lifetimes. It's you know it's at least seven generations that we don't have to worry about that. Once we've done this, it will do its work for us. I don't know, guys. At this point, you either uh, you're either willing to look at this with a logical perspective, or you're willing to cite beliefs. It's up to you. Anyway, if you enjoyed this show and the work that we do, please consider uh, helping support us by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com. I'm all about growing your own food, and one of the items I have for you today is really helpful in doing that. One of the things that's really hit us hard throughout a lot of this country is the loss of mineralization of our soils. Our soils have been largely demineralized. And this is due to a lack of proper soil management. And one of the easiest ways there is to make sure your plants have the minerals they need to be healthy uh, and, and good for you and also for them to grow strong is give them liquid kelp. Liquid kelp fertilizer is one of the most powerful ways to mineralize your soils and to remineralize soils and to directly feed plants when you use a foliar feed. So not only can we drench soil with this, we can use a more diluted version. We can actually spray plants with it. And they will actually take those minerals in through their leaves. And it is a very renewable item, like when you remove kelp, as long as you don't like strip mine, and which is illegal to do anyway, um, it grows back. In fact, a lot of kelp just like breaks free and washes up on shore. You see it all the time. We can even grow kelp forests intentionally. And it, it mines a tremendous amount of minerals from the ocean in a way that, again, it doesn't hurt anything. How many minerals? Seventy. Liquid kelp gives plants access to 70 different minerals, and they're all easily absorbed. That's the other thing, they're bioavailable. Here's what liquid kelp does, and this is all proven with scientific study. It improves seed germination, increases root development. It increases blossom set and the size of flowers and fruits. It increases and stabilizes chlorophyll in plants, which results in darker green leaves with increased sugar content and more nutrients. Relieves stress in plants caused by extreme weather conditions. Hmm. Increases plant vigor and thus imparts greater resistance to disease, insects, drought, and frost. Does that fit with today at all? Hmm. Increases microorganisms in the soil that can fix nitrogen from the air. Increases mineral uptake from soil into the plant. So not only does it provide minerals, it actually increases the ability of the existing minerals to get into the plants. It increases the storage life of fruits and vegetables by retarding the loss of protein, chlorophyll, and RNA after harvest, and it retards the aging process in plants, thereby lengthening the production season. You see why I brought this product to you with today's show? And let me tell you, I know it's, it's just March, and some of you are still in cold weather. This is the time to start thinking about getting your beds ready. I'll tell you another thing that you can do with this stuff that's amazing. Uh, per gallon of water... Use about an ounce when you do this, and you can use garret juice and other things along with it. But get something like a kiddie pool and fill it with mulch. But before you do that, mix this stuff in water and then put your mulch into it. 
And if it's not enough water, then add more water. But mix it in a few gallons of water first, at least. And you can literally charge up your mulch with the minerals and the, the value of this liquid kelp and slowly time release it back into your plants. The other thing you can do is you can do kind of a, oh, I guess you'd call it like a hugel culture style thing with wood chips where you do the same thing and then you put them in the bottom of a bed and then you put your soil on top. You create this reserve of minerals in your soil. There's just, it, it is one of the keys to the production that you see me get in my gardens. It, it, it's, it's one of those things, like, like I have a whole seven-part fertility regime, but if you made me pick a few, like I only got to use three or four of them, it would be one. It would be a good, a good fertilizer, good organic fertilizer like Dr. Earth, but there's other good ones, right? It would be the liquid plant, uh, the liquid kelp, and the Garrett juice, or I'd be making my own compost teas. Those three, I would never give up any one of those three. And so definitely give it a shot. And remember, you can always support us by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com. With that, let's talk about our song of the day today. Um, I expected this song to actually be a war protest song, based on what it was called and who wrote it and who sang it. It's by James Taylor, and it's called Far Afghanistan. And uh, Taylor is a very big anti-war person, but this song really isn't anti-war. I guess it could be taken that way. It's, it's actually really interesting, though. What it really talks about is the mindset required to go into a place like, like Afghanistan as a soldier. What Taylor said about it is he, he thinks a lot about it, and he still can't understand how people can mentally get themselves into a place where they're willing to face that kind of danger. You know, We have an all-volunteer all military, too. If you sign up to join the military today, you know there's a distinct possibility that you end up in one of these theaters. And people do it anyway. And it's really just more of an observation of what it's like and, 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 and what it takes on both sides. Not just the, 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 the people that serve in our military, but the people over there and their mentality and the way they see things as fighters. And I think it's, it's useful at times for an artist like James Taylor to, to, to write something artistically about what it is without necessarily having to inject politics in it. Because I, I don't hear any politics in this song at all. Now, it's a political subject, warfare, Afghanistan, prior invasions, etc. But the song to me is very devoid of politics. And I think that's what makes it interesting. With that, it's been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. We just learned to get along Civilized and socialized To teach you right from wrong How to hold your liquor And how to hold your tongue How to hold a woman Or a baby Or a gun But nothing will prepare you For the far Afghanistan you can listen to their stories Pick up what you can You listen to their stories Maybe read a book or two Until they send you out there Man, you haven't got a clue Oh, they tell you a tradition 
Talks back to 